Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, ah, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckstables? What the fuck ups? What the fuck, uh, there's so many. I should just make a master list. I keep getting them. I'm not asking for them, but I keep getting them. Not unlike cupcakes, chocolate-covered things, cookies. Oh, my God. Hey, I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for tuning in. I still have a little throaty, coldy thingy going on. It didn't seem to manifest into anything awful and debilitating, but there's always time for that. Am I right? I just got back from D.C. I was at the uh, Arlington Draft House. God damn it. Thank you. Thank you for coming out to see me there. We we sold out four shows. They added a show. I don't want to brag, but that's never happened to me before. And we had a great time. I mean, they were great shows. Uh, I was in and out. I didn't get time to hang out in the city. I want to thank everybody for bringing me. Just to, I'll just go by the short list. Now, I'm not sure if I made it clear that perhaps it's not good for me to go back to my hotel room with a mound of baked goods. I know it's the holiday season, and I lucked out. That it, I that yesterday I made it my new cheat day after my cheat week over Thanksgiving. It seems like the cheat days are, are getting closer together. But please, thank you for the Oreo, the homemade Oreo truffles, the dreidel-shaped chocolate-covered marshmallows, the cookies, the cupcakes, the mint-topped brownies. Oh, my God. I had to give them away at the end of the show. But uh, really, great audiences, and, and I really had a good time. It was a little weird. Uh, they put me up right across from the Pentagon. And I don't live in D.C., so the Pentagon to me is still, you know, holds a weird place of evil resonance in my head. And I still have pretty peculiar, slightly whack job uh, fears about being in D.C. I, I, I obviously feel like I should be doing more. I always feel like when I'm in D.C. that I should be out there standing and yelling at something some building, somewhere, but I could literally see the Pentagon from my hotel, and I had a moment, I had a flash of like, fuck, it's right there, I better be careful what I think, because, you know, they got those machines now that get right in your head, and they know exactly what you're thinking, and with this new National uh, Defense uh, Act that's uh, going down, I don't know, they could just come right over to my hotel and pull me out of it. And, and bring me in and, and pop open the top of my head with some sort of can opener-like uh, machine, take out my brain and wash out all of my filthy ideas. They could literally do that. They could take me right out of my garage and take me to a, a local brain, uh, brain cleansing station and just wash them out. That's what's going down, man. That's what's happening. Yeah, it, what, they say Al-Qaeda today, but tomorrow it could be guys who work in their garage. I know how this shit rolls. You don't got to fucking tell me how to get right back into that mindset. Now I want to know what the name of that fucking act is because I'm tired of not knowing things. I'm tired of my brain losing chunks of things. I'm going to go look for it right now and I'll be back in a second. Can we play a second of music here? Thank you. Got it. Got it. National Defense Authorization Act passed in Congress, you know, in the Senate. Yeah, man, it, it seems like uh, 
It, it looks like pretty soon there's not going to be any reason we won't have the uh, U.S. military on every street corner with the freedom and power to do anything. Anything they're told under any president. And this is my broad understanding about it. I don't do a lot of politics, but I don't know how anybody can really be for this. I mean, there are certain things I do in my own home that I'd like to keep in my own home. And they may not be against the law today, but geez, all it takes is one wacko to say that's bad now. No more wearing hats indoors. Right, corral those people up and take them to a FEMA camp. I'm, I'm going to stay out of Alex Jones territory, but uh, makes me a little uncomfortable if I let my brain go with it. So now I'm back. I'm back home. Got to really lean into writing this book. Uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but uh, it's it, my process. I don't know what your creative process is, but if I could talk to you about mine for a second... Mine involved, did I mention Anthony Bourdain is on the show today? Did I mention that? Did I mention that upon reading his book, uh, Kitchen Confidential? You know, I like his TV shows, one of which is on tonight. Man, what is the name of the TV show that's his new one? It's on tonight. Hold on a second. Could you play some music here? I got to find out. Here it is, The Layover. That's the name of his new show. It is on Mondays. I'm looking forward to it. I, I didn't watch it last week. I think this tonight is maybe the third one. I like his other show. I watch it occasionally. But after I read Kitchen Confidential, I was like, this fucking dude. I mean, there. I didn't really fully realize the, the, the similarities between comedy and cooking. The dues that one has to pay in order to get to a higher level, the, the experience you have to the sort of absorb in order to know how to do what you're doing. I imagine it's the same with any craft, but there was such a weird camaraderie between kitchen people and restaurant people and the network of people that are involved in that world and also the gritty, grimy, drug-infested weirdness that goes on in the showbiz world and the comedy world also goes on in the chef worlds, of course, because chefs are crazy. I, I've worked in restaurants. I miss working in restaurants. There's some part of me that wants to be working in a restaurant. The immediate gratification of working in a restaurant, of getting shit done, of being covered with grease at the end of a shift and realizing we won, we got through those dupes. I, I miss that shit. I've, I've, I, have, uh, I have chef envy. I don't think I could have been a, a real chef. I can cook okay. Did I mention? I didn't mention. Why do I keep saying that as if I did, knowing that I didn't? Uh, I've reintroduced my obsession with cast iron pans into my life. I don't know if any of you have that, but this is the kind of thing that I, uh, that I really find starts happening when I have something to do. When I have a deadline, I have a book deadline. You know what that means? That I'm looking forward to seasoning my cast iron pans. The first time someone, the first time I bought a cast iron pan, I bought it at a yard sale and the woman selling it. I said, how much for the pan? She goes, I won't sell that to you if you ever let soap or water. If you ever, if you ever let soap and water hit that pan, you, can, you have to promise you're not going to let soap and water hit that pan. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Soap is the, the death of, of cast iron to her. 
But then it made me sort of curious about it. I mean, what is it with cast iron? Then I did research on cast iron where you have to season the pan with lard or oil and sort of bake on the surface. You you heat up a cast iron pan that's thinly coated in some sort of grease and that kind of becomes silicone. It burns and it, it adheres and you make a nonstick surface and then you have to take care of that. So maintaining cast iron pans and keeping them well seasoned is almost like a religion because there's a perfection in your mind that you think you can achieve with this surface and they get that black look, that burnt black shiny look that you can create. But eventually they get fucked up and they get rusty and you don't know why. And then you're like, how do I start over? I don't fucking know. Then I did a a little research on that and there's some sort of electrolysis process. This is what I almost did. There's some sort of rig you can make with a with a, a generator or a car battery charger where you hook up two ends to something, you hook up one end to liquid that's in a tub and, and you put lye or something in it and then you hook up the other, the positive charge to the pan and dunk it in the liquid to get off the old surface. So in the middle of writing my book, that was one of the endeavors I was going to get to work on because God knows cast iron is important. Now, if somebody could just tell me the appropriate way to do it that they've had success with, that would be wonderful. So then maybe I could write my book and get past this cast iron obsession, this re-obsession. I have three fucking cast iron pans in the in the in the house there that I, I take care of and that I barely use, but they represent something perfect to me that I could only hope to achieve. Back to Burdain. So it was a it was a no-brainer for me to try to connect with him around the similarities between who we are as people, you know, both of us having a bit of a drug past, uh, both of us in this in crazy lines of work, both of us spending a lot of time not quite being where we we set out to be. And uh, I was thrilled to talk to him, and I hope you enjoy that uh, this conversation with Anthony. And also getting back to creativity and writing the book and cast iron pans. I can't seem to do anything unless I have cornered myself into a situation where I'm consumed with panic and I have no choice but to just spit it out in weird, anxious spurts, whatever I'm going to create. It's the same with my comedy. It's the same with my writing. It's the same with this podcast. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to say until I get on this mic. I don't know what I'm going to write until I'm consumed with panic and a deadline is approaching. I'm not sure what my new material is going to be until I take one or two sentences that I've scribbled in a notebook and decide to get up on stage and try to flesh it out. I need to corner myself so the only way I can create is to battle out of that corner with whatever I'm creating. That's my fucking, that is my process. That doesn't work with cooking, though. You, should, you need to have some skills in place or you're just going to make a mess. Let's talk to Anthony Bourdain. Come on, you're a fucking rock star at this point. Uh, I'm still thinking, you know, it's a uh, deep fryer awaits at any moment. You know, it'll come as an overnight thing. So, uh, well, that's I, a, I'm feeling pretty lucky and like it could all evaporate at any minute, right? Well, that's what's interesting, man. I mean, because, uh, you, you know, I'm familiar with your, your stuff a bit and I've read your stuff and like the similarities between where you come from and where stand up comics come from is profound. It's gotten closer and stranger because. Uh, at this point, you know, I started, uh, you know, one minute I'm standing there next to the deep fryer cooking. Then I write this little article for a free newspaper that ends up in the New Yorker. A day later, I've got a book deal. I write a book. Somehow I end up on television. Um, but at the end of the day, 
I would say that probably the largest amount of my income comes from live perform, like a speaking gig, yeah. which are essentially work in the same rooms that you probably you're probably very familiar with and had played all over the country. And I do we're about probably 40, little, you're probably a little bigger act than uh, me, but, uh, but yeah. I guess we're probably, I know we're playing the same the same rooms. Um, it's it's me standing on stage for an hour. And uh, talking to a live, audience, a ticketed audience, uh, do, and then doing Q and A for another hour. But an hour up up there talking, one city after another. And let's face it, you're up on a stage talking for an hour to a, a whole bunch of people. There better be a dick joke every sixty seconds or ninety seconds, and you better get a laugh. But are those so, that, the, so that's been a steep learning curve for me. But are those the kind of people you're talking to? They really expect dick jokes. I mean, I, it would seem to me that you'd. Uh, I guess you attract. You know, chefs and 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 the rabble of the cooking industry, but I would think that you, you you're probably attracting a bit more urbane an audience. No, the similarities between us are so so. Uh, you never know what on Mondays it'll be. The whole room will smell of smoked fish and onions, and it's you know cooks and restaurant people you'd think would be my constituency, but the other you know you never know. You pull into town and it's all golfers. Yeah, um, you know, I've done like you know Palm Springs, Palm so you do Desert. Like, I've done the Shore Room at Harrah's in Reno. Some some drunk, events, drunk gamblers. So, right. I mean, I've, I've really had to learn. But you know, the weird thing is, is like you know, because I worked in in restaurants, and there was a time in my life where you know that's what I wanted to do, and there was a time in my life where the I'm talking about the immediacy of it. When you tell a joke, you know right there whether that joke's going to work or not. When you flip a fucking egg or you get a plate out, it's that same feeling of immediate gratification. It can repeat itself over and over again. And there's a, there's a thrill to it. When I worked in a kitchen when I was younger, I was just a grill cook. I didn't have the chops to do anything else. Once they put me on a line, it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. I, I, they, I was working as a waiter. I wanted to do a line. I wanted to try the line. And it was a disaster because I couldn't do it. I felt intimidated. I uh, My onion rings clumped up and that was the end of <laughs> oh my, that's the end that was the end of my cooking career that was the end of my line work but but what i really relate to when i when i read your stuff is that weird mixture like where i don't even get a sense you know from when from where you're coming from and in the same with me and this just from from you know reading your books like i know i make people laugh Mm-hmm. And and I think, uh, you know, on some level, you make people happy. But that cigarette you smoke after you've just gone through a rush and you're covered in grease. There ain't nothing like it. Right. But it's got nothing to do with making people happy. It's, it, <laughs> you know, it's, you really put your finger on it. Uh, doing a live, you know, appearing live in front of people, you know right away. This is going well or it's, it's, it's not. Uh, cooking is all about immediate gratification. Exactly right. You know, there's there's no argument. It's a meritocracy. You know right away. Did I do well, or did I not do well? You turn to your right. You turn to your left. You can tell the people you're working with are looking at you a certain way. You can hear it off the floor. Is food coming back? I mean, you know, there yeah. are there are provable and immediate stats, and I think that explains a lot of the sort of personality types you see in, in stand-up comedy over the years that 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 are attracted to to any kind of performance. Uh, adrenaline junkies, uh, 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 people who need that immediate gratification. And social misfits, so, but, but but yeah, social <laughs> misfits. The restaurant business for sure. Cooking, but writing and making television—that's all different. Writing, you know, no matter how well the book sells, okay, your mom tells you it's good, but yeah, is it really good? But you're also it just sells sitting, well. Does that mean it's really good? You don't know. You don't. Hear well, you're that sitting immediate. by yourself. Yeah, you're sitting by yourself in a room, second guessing yourself, going over paragraphs, wondering whether this is good, whether people give a shit or not. Yeah. But I mean, how when you started? Where did you grow up here? Uh, I grew up in Jersey. 
What part of Jersey? Uh, uh, born here, grew up in Bergen County, like right, literally right across the GW Bridge. Oh, my family comes. My mother comes from Pompton Lakes, yeah, Wayne. Sure. Yeah. You know where that yeah, is, yeah, right? Yeah. Sure. So you grew up coming into the city. You grew up, you yeah. know, but it wasn't it wasn't your goal to be a cook. My yeah, I fell into the business. I mean, uh, it, it, I I was a misfit. I was an angry, pissed off uh, kid. Uh, you know, How I hated you now? college. Uh, I'm 55. I'm 47. I'm just trying. Okay, so you're you know, old. I was 17 years old. I was uh, I got a job as a dishwasher. I, I quickly realized I hated college. I hated you myself. Go? I went to Vassar. So you were a smart for a year kid. And a half. I mean, I mean, doesn't you can't get into an Ivy League school? I had a good high school education, and I was a smart ass. I could talk a good game. I had good. I was good in English class. The rest I sort of cruised on. Who were your guys shit. in English? Like, who were your writers? Who were you modeling your life after at that time? What was that, like 1969, 70? Uh, yeah. I, I read uh, Hunter S. Thompson in uh, Rolling Stone as it was serializing. Uh, Burroughs? Fear Loathing. Uh, yeah, so you're, you're reading me all too well. I quickly, that violent, hyperbolic uh, writing. I mean, first first it was Thompson, uh, quickly fell into Burroughs, um, always liked Orwell. Uh, were you building? I, like I like a ripping good, you know, a, a crime novel too. But yeah. But I mean, I didn't. I was not a guy who was uh, looking to be a writer. I I talk about it. I just I like a lot of people. I figured, well, if I do did a lot of drugs, um, and 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 sort of uh, created this Byronic persona, I would somehow automatically then be an artist. I didn't actually do any writing. To but you had it in your mind. That's how you were geared. You weren't going to be a math guy. You weren't going to be a... Yeah, I wanted the smoking jacket and the sure. opium pipe yeah. and the girls. And right then, it, like at that time, when you're in high school, the whole culture is crashing. I mean, you know, everything's changing. Like the wave of the 60s is about over. But well, that's, that, 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 that line of Thompson's about this is where the wave broke and rolled yeah. back. That was exactly when I'm headed off to college. So, you know, boning Gray Slick was out you know, free love, all of the stuff that looked good to me no, when got, I was like, got, 14, uh, that was already clearly a, a, a bad joke at a bunch of like, you know, uh, scabies infected hippies who would want to share my yogurt, which but is it, something I definitely didn't want to do. Right. Uh, so I knew by the time I arrived at college, I, did, I didn't believe in anything. And, and so when I got my first dishwashing gig, this was a revelation to me. This was, I wanted these, this, these, this was the first time in my life that I wanted anybody else's respect uh, that I cared about anybody yeah. else's opinion. I liked the fact that you either were good or not, and you knew it right away. Yeah. It was the first time in my life I felt proud of myself. I went home at the end of a busy dishwashing shift, and, and I felt good shit. about myself. And, and I looked at the way the cooks were living, and okay, they didn't have smoking jackets or opium pipes, but they were getting girls, and they were living like rock stars even long before the celebrity chef. And I'm, these, these were you know nobody, you know, part-time carpet, they're line cooks, but they were living like Motley Crue, and that looked good to me. And what the, what kind of stuff did you grow up with? What was the pressure like when you grew up? What were your, what was your family like? My parents were well-read uh, Kennedy Democrats. Uh, you know, uh, my dad worked for Columbia Records. He did uh, the classical music division. <laughs> uh, but I grew up in a house full of books and records with the, uh, Mad Men era. Yeah, very much buying into what I think we all believed was that automatically, just by virtue of growing up in New Jersey. Uh, you know, middle class, that we were going to all live better lives than our parents lived. That we really wouldn't have to do anything to get that either. And were, I was quickly disabused of that notion. Were they pissed off at you initially? Uh, they were horrified. I was, the I was a bad seed. I mean, I was an angry, self-destructive, and I defined my entire... I mean, Hunter Thompson is a, is a, was a great writer to want to, to, to wanna write like, but as a role model for a 13-year-old, I probably could have done better. I, I very much 
my whole I, my whole my entire persona as a fourteen year old was built around the records I listened to and the drugs that I did. Yeah, that I I, I that was the same way, and I always gravitated towards uh, fucked up people. It yeah. was always it was Keith Richards, it was Hunter, it was Morrison, it was Lenny Bruce, it was anyone who was fucked up. I was yeah. like that. That's my guy, yeah. Shelley Byron. Where, yeah. where, however. Yeah. You know, uh, and it was in, in instinctive. It felt natural, and and my friends, the friends I chose for most of my adult life, were the people who did the same drugs that I did or or wanted to do. And so, it for better or worse, it's not something I'm proud of or ashamed of in particular. It it all worked out in the end uh, after some bumps, but but I mean, I was a guy who very much wanted to be a heroin addict eventually. I mean, my whole life was pointed towards that yeah i felt that yeah you know i i was the i was the guy who did more than anybody else right now and 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 if i was going to get laid it was be by being you know badder and and more badly behaved and more reckless and self-destructive than the next guy it was a very successful strategy for the early 70s and and uh you know i stuck with it for a couple of decades (laughs) naturally as these stories usually do it ended you know badly you know but but that's an interesting sort of trajectory i mean because like it it seems to me that where you're at now and and what you're providing people and what you're providing yourself it it came out of nowhere in a way it was it it was a surprising manifestation for your life i wrote a short piece for fellow line cooks and misfits and that was my highest aspiration was to entertain a few fellow line cooks and restaurant people in new york but that at what it. point did, did you were you ever gunning to be the best chef no in the world i mean at what point did that dream ever exist at a point early in the 80s having rolled out of culinary institute uh i went through a brief period on the basis of very little f- reality I certainly had convinced myself uh, that I was much more talented and creative and important as a chef than I was. But in fact, I was, you know, uh, you know, uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I had just a little knowledge and, and I never really worked with any great chefs. I never put in the work. I never held myself to the high standards. I was, I was getting, I had it very easy. I rolled out a culinary institute at a time and not a lot of other cooks and chefs had and I, I was instantly a chef, and I was getting paid, and I was getting laid, and life was easy. And well, was, if you had any originality at that time, I would imagine, or had any flair to yourself, you were, you were probably somewhat of a rock star in your small circles anyways, right? There, no one cared about chefs back then, and the fact is, at the end of the day, people didn't want to eat my food because it wasn't that good. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I bankrupted, you know, I bankrupted many owners who bought my line of shit. What was your line of shit? Oh, I'm a fucking genius. I mean, I know I can read the LaRousse gastronomique and I know what these words mean. That right, about right. It. Yeah. So I just make them feel like idiots by saying, oh, well, this clearly calls for a matignon of vegetables. They had no idea what I was talking about, but, but you know, using a few French terms and, and, and being able to make a pâté en croûte, that went a long way back then. Yeah. Not... Not enough, but <laughs> because there weren't that many people who were coming out of culinary school that knew that shit that were right. operating at that level, so you could really sort and of. I was dazzle. a smart ass who could talk a good game, and I, I my friends uh, who I'd come up with were were like me. So, but at the end of the day, it was not food that people wanted to eat, and to be honest with myself, looking back, it, it it wasn't very good. I mean, there were you know even then back in the seventies and eighties, there were people out there who had been to France and 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 worked hard in great kitchens and learned their their craft and yeah. were just they were really good at it yeah. I, yeah I never was was that because that uh you know the the lifestyle was more of a priority yeah that the brotherhood of pirates that that is the yeah. kitchen and drugs was just more of a priority 
Yeah, I change jobs every couple of years. You know, uh, I bounce from place to place. I could always get a gig. Um, and I could, you know, I was your guy. If you wanted someone who could crank out 300 brunches competently, uh, I was your guy. But if you want a, a, a you know, an exciting new restaurant that, the, that uh, you know, rich people are going to go to on a regular basis, probably not. not you, that wasn't you? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it, it's it's sort of it's sort of mind blowing to me that like I watched um, I don't I don't know when you did the episode, but I saw it recently and I thought it was very touching. And it was odd because it wasn't an adventure episode; it was just you and that uh, the guy from the magazine go to that small French restaurant, mm-hmm. and and there was just some sort of emotional connection you had to this basic French food. Well, I like I like food. I mean, and I am. Uh... I am a sentimental guy, and I have reached a point in my life where I actually do have respect for my elders yeah. and people who did put in their time. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, now that I'm older, you know, I, I am sentimental about stuff that I took for granted as a kid, you yeah. know, uh, eating French food for the first time. So, yeah, I'm a softie about a lot of that. And and uh, and I also, am, I know that I'm lucky. I found myself in a position to make television anywhere I want, about anything I want, any way I want. And, and I'm, I'm essentially doing what I always did, what I used to do in the kitchen was tell stories or at the bar tell stories. Yeah. And I told them in books and now I can tell them on television. But I'm basically, it's all part of the same thing. You're, you're, you're telling a story. And I'm just, when you're making television, you have a whole bunch of other tools that you can use to get people to feel the way you want them to feel. But it seems to me that your, your education, you know, coming through what you came through, which was really kind of hellish in a way. I mean, it's a glorious hell because when I, when I, I had a friend who I used to work at, at a grill with. You know, I worked mm-hmm. in college. I was just a just a grill guy, making pancakes and eggs, and you know, and was very excited when I got through twenty dupes. You know, but doing a line stuff I couldn't handle. But the guy who I brought in, my roommate, went on to culinary school mm-hmm. and is now an industrial chef of some kind. But you know, it, it seems that from your cooking and from what you had to learn there, that the way you talk about the 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 kitchen. And the way you talk about what you went through, I mean, the education about, you know, ethics, morality, politics, relationships, loyalty, you know, and then, you know, working in this weird gray area where you're almost a subculture, you know, in between the man and the rabble, mm-hmm. that there was, it was almost like its own universe. And that seems to have informed your entire life. Well, a lot of things that I think that grownups learn, you know, other people maybe learn in different ways. I learn, you know, for me, the most important thing I learned about anything really was was as a dishwasher. I learned to show up on time, to show respect for the people I work with. I learned to become a guy who, if I say I'm going to meet you tomorrow at 8 o'clock to see a movie, I will be there at 8 o'clock. Um, it's a simple lesson. Um, but I really took that to heart. Um, doing, working hard and, and, and enjoying the respect and the camaraderie of the people I work with, you know, that was a big transformation for me as a wasteful kid. Um, you know, every other part of my life was a mess. Um, but I did have good work habits. You know, I did work hard. Um, I was competent at, at, you know, I, you could rely on me to work a grill station. So that was really the, the only constant in a life that was, you know, headed to the usual sort of sad conclusion for people who think cocaine's a good idea or that, you know, uh, you know, heroin's always going to feel good. Um, How strung out did you get? I got really strung out. You were, know, you, I, were you banging it or just? 
Yeah, you know, uh, eight years on methadone to to to, to get out. Uh, um, it's not, it's interesting to me that they, like when in some parts of uh, some of your stories where that like even when I was driving over here because you know I got twelve years sober and I, you know I wasn't a dope dude but I was definitely a coke dude and a booze dude. But like even when I was driving over here and I was queasing the car because I was typing and shit and I didn't think I was going to make it and I had this fucking nauseousness. But there's something in my brain that says, you know, getting through queasy is easy. Mm-hmm. That there that there there are things you learn that only come from being a drug warrior of some kind, where that yeah. you can like you know well it's useful actually for me especially with television, knowing how what kind of really disgusting behavior you're capable of prevents you from starting to talk about yourself in the third person at any point in your life when you know how low you can go well when you've hurt and disappointed people and, and humiliated yourself you know for many years you right know, you you know you're not going to start complaining about you know the wrong bottled water you know uh <laughs> you know the smell of the griddle is still pretty fresh in my memory is and, it? and i still remember you know what it's like to you know you know all the whiny bullshit stories you use to get by as a junkie. You know, I'm, it it wasn't the it was the humiliation that got me out. You know, I was I was I I I think vanity was my vanity saved me from from drugs. I was just a really embarrassed and humiliated by what I'd see in the mirror every day. And how much did you had uh, like? What years are we talking here? Were you were you like persona non grata? I mean, and the in New York I, restaurant scene. I burned a lot of bridges for sure. Uh, no, there's always a job for somebody who can cook brunch. This is a this is a sad. <laughs> this is why the smell of French toast is, is to this day something I can bear. Or, or, or hollandaise sauce, I, I, I can't because those are the bad times for me. You know, I, I go back to cooking brunch because so you know people are always desperate for somebody, anybody to at least work the two days a week doing a busy brunch. So what your bottom looks like is eggs Benedict. Yeah, that, that's, that's the bottom. <laughs> it, yeah, <laughs> with a little strawberry fan and a, and, a, and a little orange twist. That is the smell and feel of of utter defeat for me. Um, but uh, you know, I burned. There weren't a lot of people left who were going to lend me money anytime soon. Uh, How'd you yeah. kick it? How'd you finally get off a of dope and coke? Uh, dope methadone. Uh, and then again, you know, I was just tired of seeing junkies every day at the clinic and peeing in a, in a you know, a cup. And then coke, crack cocaine saved my life, actually. Because like, after a lifetime, <laughs> well, after a lifetime of, of, of snorting coke, suddenly, yeah. you know, you bottom out so quick on crack. I mean, I don't know how guys like, like George Clinton, you know, it's like, how, how can you read about these guys who like smoking crack for 20 years? How can you do it? You, you can know? feel your heart exploding and your brain exploding you know, every time you take a hit. Yeah, eight, you know, after eight months, you're, you know, you're smoking the paint chips out of the carpet. You know, I was like, oh, it might be a, it might be a rock. You know, it's like, how can you do that for 20 years? I just, that's something I do. Genetics. <laughs> I guess. I guess. <laughs> so you've actually had those moments where you're, you're like hearing voices and crawling around on the floor and like, you know, thinking about like, uh, like who's listening to you through the wall? Oh, dude, you know, you know, putting tinfoil in the windows, and and uh, here's something I really recommend against doing if you yeah. if you are still smoking crack, don't start buying like uh, you know uh, surveillance equipment out of catalogs. You know, instead of I buy like parabolic microphones and listening devices from some little you know rinky tink yeah, security yeah, outfit, yeah. so 
you know, not only am I pretty convinced that the FBI are going to come tunneling through the wall at any minute, but I'm I'm ready for them. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm stripped naked <laughs> in a squatting position with my ear against the wall with an earplug in, yeah. listening. You know, <laughs> and what were you prepared to say to them when they came in? I knew it. I just wanted advance warning. <laughs> <laughs> oh man like drug stories are as good as as restaurant stories I they mean, hurt though no no restaurant stories are good stories i mean i'm i'm, there's I'm, I'm sentimental about those i'm happy about those i uh you know i i don't know that if if i could go back in time and talk to myself at, at 14 or 15 that i would do things li- differently or listen to myself but i don't you know i wouldn't want to do that again yeah no i mean you when know. when you were a kid though i mean like it, once you got to New York, like 1970, 1971, or, or whenever you ended up here after culinary school, I mean, punk rock must have been exploding. The city must have just been on fire with fucking decadence. I mean, were you part of that scene? Did you did you get, um, were you able to see like uh, uh, the New York Dolls? and? Yeah, and I saw all the, all, the, all the great bands. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it, you know, all the punk bands, you know, it's, it's worth remembering. They were all broke. Nobody listened to that music, uh, you know, uh, it seemed. And everybody was high on dope. You know, that was a dope era for me. You know, yeah, yeah I was listening to a lot of great music. Uh, but I was also, you know, vomiting publicly. Yeah. You know, regularly and happy about it. <laughs> that's See, that's that weird drug warrior spirit. Is that yeah. like, because when, 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 I, when, I, when I read your book, yeah, the first book, just because I relate to that fucking moment and I can never understand what it is, is that, here you are fucking strung out, you're high, and the only, and you're just happy that you didn't fall asleep doing your job. I don't know how I did it, honestly. I mean, it's I like guess it's a young, victory. you know, you, you, you're, you're Superman for a while, but, you know, it, it, it you know, it comes home uh, eventually. And now, you know, now I'm at the point, I can't even, I can't even be around people on Coke. Like, I, I look at them and I'm like, in England, if you, if you you go to England, it's like, everybody, it's like 1986 there. Everybody's just, doing Charlie. Yeah. And it's like, Jesus, I hope I never spoke like that. I probably did. It's like every other word out of your mouth is a stream of bullshit. Yeah, you know, yammering, half drunk, fucking maniacs, and it. It's, I, I can't even. You know, I, 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 I feel like, you know, I start to pick up this sort of contact paranoia. You know, I'm tweaking and feel like I, you know, just had a big load of mannitol oh, yeah, just, get, just looking at him. Yeah, you, get, you know, you got a shit. Yeah, yeah. I, get it. Yeah. I don't know why. Talking to you, I gotta go shit right got now. Got a drip in the back. I don't understand why I got that drip. Oh man! But there was was there something about the continuity uh, of food that like through your life? I mean, like I don't know chefs. I know a few, mm. you know. But like even when like I watch Chopped compulsively, right? Only because the way the brain works in organizing food and and the philosophy of food and the basic lessons of food and bringing stuff together like i don't even know the judges names but when i watch these people put shit together and see what they can create mm-hmm. just out of the the um the food intelligence and and yeah the- you look at the guys on top chef for instance i mean these are really talented people I, you know at no point in my life as a professional could i have one top chef um, or even made it into the finals. They're, 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 these these are really really talented, hardworking people who've made a lot of sacrifices uh, to 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 be that good. Um, you know, you have the luxury of of being that, of feeling that way about food. I mean, to me, I fell into the business because I fell in love with the lifestyle. I liked the people. I liked that I was part of a cult. I liked that I was making something with my hands that you were either rewarded or punished for immediately. Um, now I guess I, I'm I'm privileged to be able to to 
travel the world of my stomach and really think about food and 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 I guess all of my previous life in the life 28 years um, I guess allows me a perspective uh, where I'm always thinking about who cooked this food it's not just what what am I eating it's who cooked it and why you know what drove them to cook this way you know where does this food tradition come from there's always a story, and so it's, it's a really interesting. And one. also, you can tell, like I have found, and and I think you'll validate this, is that when, like, even if it's a good restaurant, if you go and there's no heart there, you you're not mm-hmm. gonna you can taste it. Like there there are restaurants because I never quite understood that where you go to a good restaurant and either the chef is gone or no one gives a fuck about the right. food anymore, and it's just shit. Cynical food doesn't taste good. Um, and irony, you know, is, is something uh, that's dangerous in food. You know, if it's sort of an ironic riff on something, you know, you have to be a romantic to cook well. You know, you have to actually like food yourself and, 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 and appreciate a lot of different types of food to cook well. You know, you use the word heart. Yeah, you got to, you gotta, essentially, if you're a chef, a good chef. Yeah. Or even a good cook, you're you're in the pleasure business. You you have to have an understanding of what makes people happy and 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 push those buttons. You're so, right. Yeah. You know it. Uh, you'll you'll notice. I mean, there are some cooks, really, you know, very technically accomplished, but eat their food. It's like I don't know whether this guy's ever been laid in his life. You, <laughs> you know, can, I don't think he understands yeah. pleasure or or making anybody else happy. Yeah, it's about. It's, it's it's too cerebral. Yeah, uh, it's an emotional thing, you know. Um, and if you look at how chefs like to eat after work when they're not on the job, even really fine dining chefs, it's you know, they want somebody's mom's meatloaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want a meatball hero, you know, it's a good a, one. It's amazing to me the similarities between you, you know basic you know good music, rock and roll, comedy, cooking. That there's something very immediate. It's something anyone can do with a little bit of of. Of training to some degree, like if you mm-hmm. know how to play guitar, basically, you can probably. If you got some heart, you're going to be able to pull something out of that. It's interesting to see who musicians musicians are, who right. who, who people in various industries choose as their sort of favorites, right. comedians, comedians, right? Um, you know, yeah, they're I, usually I the know. guys there are, there toiling are, in obscurity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there there are chefs chefs for sure. Who um, are they? Um, Who are yours? Um, guys like I don't know uh, Wiley Dufresne for sure. He's a, that's a guy who's who doesn't. I don't know whether, to what extent he cooks for the public as much as he he's cooking for himself. He's cooking for other chefs. He's asking himself hard questions. He's working the line himself. He's he's not. He hasn't made that transmit transition as, as so many of his peers have to sort of celebrity chef. Um, he can't help himself. He, yeah. He's he's got to cook as well as he can. He's he's got to ask. He's 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 really trying to be as good as he can. Uh, Fergus Henderson, a guy in England who who's cooking basically simple, traditional English food. Uh, very people generally chefs who do very have focused on a particular area and and are just doing that over and over and again and trying to get it better and better and better. There's the sushi chef in Japan who's made maybe the same 40 cuts of sushi for 70 years, and he's still trying to get it right. This guy in Spain who does nothing but grill stuff. You know, that's where all the chefs want to eat. Very straightforward, very soulful food that's devoid of bullshit. Yeah. And there's no a lot tricks. of There's a lot of bullshit around, isn't there? As, as with anything. Yeah. Know. The... Uh, it, in in terms of like when when you travel and stuff, that I had this weird moment when I was at the diner over there, the Neptune Diner, 
at uh right off of the of the um whatever by the triborough bridge mm-hmm. when i lived in queens where i'd gone there late night just to get some pie and i saw two dudes in the back of the room that i i swear to you like having seen enough mafia movies i was like they they just dumped a body right you know and they were just sitting there let's go for some pie <laughs> right but i'm sitting there eating my pie with my fucking dumb notebook of jokes and maybe a william burroughs book and they're there they probably just washed their hands of blood but the one thing that rises beyond good and evil is fucking pie right that there, there's some part there, there's something about food and i know you must sense this when you travel around the world that because I always had this thing about when Pakistan got the nuclear bomb in India and Pakistan, there was, ten, there was tension that, in my mind, having not been to the countries but having loved the food, I thought, how can they be so upset they both have such great bread? Yeah. You know, I, and, and you must sense that the human element, and I, I think it's part of your show and part of the spirit of it, that this food and what food represents culturally transcends almost anything. Well, you know, it, it may not be the, the, to sit down with people and eat with them and express a little interest in their food or what makes them happy. Uh, it may not be the answer to world peace, but it, it's a start. Um, uh, I've been treated so well um, in places that I never thought I'd be treated well. I, I've felt a kinship with people who I, with whom I have almost nothing in common. I'm constantly sort of proven wrong about my preconceptions. A place like Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I've... There's this tremendous tradition, chances are, of hospitality built around food everywhere. People respond positively to someone, a stranger, who shows up and says, listen, I don't want to talk politics. I don't really give a shit. I'm sure we have some differences. What do you you eat? What did your mom make you? What do you eat around here? What do you like? What makes you happy? It's the beginning of a conversation. It's something that I actually bring up a lot when I would talk about the Tea Party because, you know, as a lefty Democrat, it's really easy for me to see all of the things that I find scary and offensive uh, about the Tea Party. Um, But as I realized, I guess because I filmed in places like Saudi Arabia and Vietnam, uh, you know, mainland China, uh, dictatorships, I've I've broken bread with ex-KGB officers, ex-Viet Cong cadre, uh, uh, with people from very fundamentalist uh, Muslim sects. Um, I... started when traveling around my own country I, to, to say, listen, you know, why can't I be friends with Ted Nugent? You know, why, why can't I, I find some common ground here? I mean, they're angry, uh, they're scared, they feel disenfranchised from, from, they feel the government has let them down. I don't like how they're manifesting it. I don't like, I don't agree with what they say, anything. But I definitely understand anger, disenfranchisement. I mean, if they were Egyptian, we'd kind of be rooting for them, you know? Right. We, 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 we don't even know what they want in Egypt. We know they, they're unhappy with their government. And t- Ted Nugent will go out and kill an animal with you. <laughs> I, he's a buddy. <laughs> Is um, he? And, and largely built around food, and uh, we don't have much else in common. But but we both, you know, I guess I would say this. What do I have in common with the, with the Tea Party? I'm guessing we both like beer and we both like barbecue. That's something. It's it, it, and hopefully it could be the beginning of some kind of conversation. To sneer at each other relentlessly seems counterproductive. Um, and I don't know that we could have a, a discussion about the issue, a sensible discussion about the issues. But I'm guessing, in fact, I know, because I spent a lot of time in gun country, in hunt country, in red state America. I can have a good time with those people. Who, you know, no, of course. I, and I, I, I can. And, and, I can. And, and, I, and I even like them. And I... 
and, and I respect them. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I can. I've sat down at many tables with people whose political views and 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 view of the world and evolution is completely, insanely over the top. With some talking head on Fox saying it, I would be you know bleeding from my ears. But you sit down at somebody's table, and you know there they are with their kids, and they're feeding you biscuits. It's hard not to find something to love. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I can make those people laugh. I can entertain those people. But what's interesting is a lot of times when you're sitting across the table enjoying a barbecue or biscuits with those people, in their brain, they're like, we'll get them. He'll come around to the way we think. That, they're, they're still on a basic level. I'm not Well, that's, that, that's, that's better than, than, than the alternative, which is fuck that guy. <laughs> absolutely. You know? No, I, I um, agree with you. And I, you know, I... I I don't know. I guess by traveling around the world, I just, how come I'm giving all these people a pass? You know, there are a lot of countries that I love where they have, have refined, um, you know, in, in Southeast Asia, they really, ref their attitudes are towards race and skin color, uh, more extreme and unforgiving than, you know, your most, you know, uh, you know, Ku Klux Klan do. How come it's, how come they get a pass? Well, it's just, you know, this moral cultural relativism that I practice around the world, what I mean, foreign cultures. You know, how come I, I got to bend everybody to my way of thinking here in order to have dinner with them? I, I just, I'm, well, I I'm, know I'm, 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 I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to cut my own country a break a little bit in spite of the fact that, you know, where I come from in the way I Well, think I, I, th I think that what you're saying is, is, is something I deal with a lot in, in, in dealing with, with people in general is that. You can see the heart of people, you know, and, and a lot of times people who are wrong minded are not necessarily bad hearted people. They, they may be misguided and they may have a belief system that is yeah. is malignant and horrible. But it, it's one of those things where you just sit down and you, and you eat with somebody, you talk to somebody, you walk away going, he's not such a bad guy. Granted, you yeah. know, he exterminated I mean, the. <laughs> what I mean, the best, best example is I cannot tell you how many times in, in I've heard it in Iraq. I've heard it in Turkey. I've heard it Saudi Arabia. You know, yeah. you're sitting around, you're having a good time. People are going out of their way to feed you. Your host will, with his hand, pick out the best pieces of lamb and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, constantly making sure you're getting the best. Having a great time. You're telling jokes. Chances yeah. are they watch American television. Sure. Wherever you are, they. They, you know, they like Seinfeld. They like Friends. You know, sure. they've, they've, they've seen all those shows. They yeah. grew up with them. They've yeah. got that TV, American English. But then casually, you know, over dessert, it's like, so, is it true? You know, yeah. World Trade Center, inside job. Yes, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Jews did it, of course, yeah, didn't yeah. they? And it's yeah. like, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, God. But what, what, but what about that moment? I mean, because, like, I've dealt with that moment, too. And, and how do you deal with it? I mean, I, I with a straight face say, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. But, you know, you, you, what are you going to do? I mean, a lot of the world, a lot of the world that I visit cannot imagine that any occurrence, anything, it's the CIA and the Mossad working together, all powerful. They control everything. Nothing, nothing. It couldn't have happened without their say Nobody's so. Because in their, in their view, this is who runs the world. No, no, I'm not apologizing for it. Yeah. You know, make it, it, it's a deeply discouraging moment to hear. Again, this, this sort of sweet-faced, goofy guy who's been literally hugging you all night and feeding you got totally guilelessly look you in the face and, and say something like that. You know. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The Jews. Know, they run everything. Yeah. Oh, 
<laughs> yeah, but no one's like, that organized, number one. And, you know, well, and, you know, what's the greatest argument against any conspiracy is, yeah. of course, in this country, one of the great things about it is we're really bad at that. You know, if, if, if four people know about something, that's too many already because one of them will we, no, I we, get, yeah. we, one of them will go on to write a memoir. The other one will be, end up indicted and ratting everybody else out. So I just I, I, have, I have a very low tolerance for jumbo conspiracies to start with. But that one in particular, you know, if I heard it from a, 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 a colleague at work, I would like get completely berserko uh, and get up in their face. You know, what the fuck is the matter? You sick, well, twisted freak. You know, unfuck yourself right now and right. maybe read a book. Yeah. But I guess that's exactly the point. You know, why do I sit there and smile and say, okay, I disagree with you. You're wrong when I'm sitting, you know, as a guest at somebody's home in Saudi Arabia or Uzbekistan or, or, or uh, Kurdish Turkey. You know, how come, you know, how come I'm not as angry? Yeah, I, it's because you're sitting face to face with somebody that y- you know on some level has been wired that way. Either they've been told that, they've been misinformed that. And, and I think that... I guess do you walk away humiliated or 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 still hopeful for human beings in the future? <laughs> you know, I, I think well, you know, they were nice and you know, they <laughs> they like, you know They like they, me. Yeah, they, they like me and they think Seinfeld's funny. I mean there's hope for the world. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um Africa gets troubling too, you see, you know, uh you know, genital mutilation. You know, yeah. wow. Uh, you know, how bad could anything be? Uh, but I don't walk around Africa saying, you know, okay, I have a zero tolerance. You know, you've got to stop that right now, young man, you know, and, and I totally reject all of your your many other practices that I find abhorrent. Well, I, I don't know. You know, how do you be a good person and travel? I, 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 I try to, I, I, the best I can do is to be a good guest. I talk about the grandma rule a lot, you know. Um, I try to behave when traveling like I'm at my grandmother's house. I may yeah. hate her food, yeah. and she may be a right wing crackpot, uh, but I'm going to eat. I'm going to have seconds. I'm going to smile and say thank you, Grandma. I really appreciate it. Right. Well, it's like even today. Like I drove up. I've never stayed at this hotel before. We're in the middle of of Shtetl, Williamsburg. Here, you know, I'm a I'm a you know third generation Jew. You know, brought up. You know relatively uh, conservative but not much pressure i i never was taught how to use god and when i drive through these this neighborhood i'm driving i was nervous because i'm like oh my god these clowns i mean what are you kidding me and and these are people that i'm supposed to be my people but i couldn't feel more different than them but i imagine if i sat down with them and ate their you know strange polish ukrainian you know weird traditional food that i would yeah. be i'd be okay you yeah know, it, i'd feel warm about it but uh, i i think that you don't want to start talking about the west bank or you know, or, no, or about it yeah, yeah that ain't like, gonna happen it, you know israel's really hard on the yeah. palestinians yeah. <laughs> i don't know you know what i i guess instinctively i i'm against any i'm against certainty more than anything else um i i just got this tattoo actually it basically says in ancient greek uh, i suspend judgment uh and it comes from this whole notion of the early skeptics who talked about uh, their belief was, I know nothing. In fact, I know nothing for sure. And in fact, I'm not even sure that I, about that. I, I'm, I'm, I, I like doubt. I, 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 and I abhor certainty. So whether it's a religious thing or political, anybody who's absolutely sure of anything, I'm already very wary of. And, and when I see yeah, doubt... I, even just confidence bothers you know, me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, at a meal, you know, you see people with their... People get their guard down. And I, maybe I take that for uncertainty. I, I, I'm looking for cracks. 
in, in, in whatever their belief system is. It's just the fact that you can sit down with someone, eat, maybe drink. There's a vulnerability talk. to it. Vulnerability is good. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, I, and I think that you know, that's what's interesting about coming from a kitchen is that, you know, in the way you portray it, like you know, a lot of them are misfits. A lot of them are, you know, borderline criminals and they all have this juice to be in this like this. There's something, you know, almost like, you know, life that like your life is on the line in the kitchen, that there's a camaraderie to it. But you also get all these cats that are, you know, they're just fucking loose screws and they're and, they're, and they can't help. But they yeah. can't hide their vulnerability. Well, you know, chefs have this, particularly chefs, have this uh, image of, of, of megalomania and certainty and, and they're autocratic. During the shift, you know, you're yelling, you're screaming, it's lead, follow, get, or get out of the way. But the reason that most people became chefs in the first place, I think, or many, is they sensed very early on this, this either inadequacy or awkwardness with communicating or, you know, Working in in a, in an, a normal workplace where you'd have to relate with the outside world and, and interact in a way that most people who work in banks or traditional businesses can easily, so I think actually most people in the restaurant business, most cooks and certainly most chefs, are you know like me at root pretty insecure, um, and they found a safe place where there are other damaged people or refugees or uncertain people who you can band together into a pretty rigid system. You know, there are absolutes. You know, there are certain things you must do. Uh, you have to do. You know, there is good and evil at all times. They're nice and cleanly drawn. You know, this is good, this is bad. But on the other hand, all of their other foibles are tolerated. You know, it's a very forgiving business. It's right. very and, open to people from anywhere in the right. world. And it at, doesn't matter. And at the end of the day, you're still saying, like, here, have some cake. Or here, look, look, here's a, here's this beautiful piece of lamb. Right. I mean, that's a fucking amazing thing. And you're surrounded by people who, who understand you. You know, you, you, they, they, you know, they get this weird, you know, you're working when everybody else is playing. You know, you're playing when everybody else is asleep. Uh, I like this, this whole sort of like no one knows anything idea. Because, I mean, I've had to come to that. Were you always at that? I mean, um, I think I was. A, a, I certainly went through a period where I was much more hardline ideological. You know, I you know came out of the American left, and I absolutely, you know, these were the bad guys, and these were the good guys. Uh, and where are you with that after you know sharing apple pie with Ted Nugent and maybe hunting a pig and you know having biscuits with with people who were who were angry and somewhat dangerous? Um, Have you become example. disillusioned? No. Um, I thought what you said at the in in the edition of uh, your first book that I read about the class situation mm -hmm. uh, in in kitchens and in behind celebrities, specifically chefs, was was pretty you know powerful. Well, it used to be a class thing. I mean, the, the chef's profession used to be a thing for the for the underclass. It is now not. I mean, people it's a glamour profession now. But more to your point. Uh, one of the joys of my life is getting Ted Nugent to agree with me on something. Like we agree, he agrees with me reluctantly on the Michelle Obama lunch school lunch initiative. Now he's a guy who thinks that the Obamas are basically, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Satan right. at least. I mean, yeah. and he said as inflammatory shit as you could as anyone ever has. He despises them and, and sees them as the enemy. But as I put it to him, how could you be against? Um, what she's saying, you know, you're you're a patriot. You know, this is a military readiness issue. You know, yeah. how can we, you know, uh, 
he's also an environmentalist. So getting him to agree on this one area or at least see merit to an argument, okay, maybe it's maybe I'm overstating the case, but we've actually appeared on TV and and I've gotten him to come down on the side that that you know he agrees with her and thinks that what she's doing is good. I think that's quite for me. It's a tiny victory. Plus, I got him to drink a beer. And I think it was like the second of his life. So, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to bring him around any further than that. But, you know, it it, it, it feels good. Right. You're not going to stop him from going to the militia meetings. But... Uh, I don't think we're going to be, you know, you know <laughs> hugging it out at uh, the Democratic National Convention anytime soon. Right. But, but like, in, in, in terms of, of how you see, like, what you said there is essentially that the real people that run in, in, in all of your experience, I see this to be true that the people that really run the restaurant business or make the food happen mm-hmm. is not the chefs. Well, they can't do it without, I mean, if you're a chef is a, is a cook who leads. And, and so the qualities that make a chef or a good chef are not just talent with food and creativity and good standards and, technical skills it's the ability to lead a lot of people from very different backgrounds and the fact is is that the backbone of the restaurant business a very large and steady part of that uh that the the business as a whole cannot do without are latinos principally mexicans and central americans i mean in 25 years or 20 years as an employer as a chef employer um never Never once in that entire time did an American-born kid ever walk into my restaurant and ask for a dishwasher job, a night cleanup job, or even a prep job. Uh, th- those jobs Which you are did. filled. Yeah, I, I, when I started as a summer, you know, a seasonal help, you could you, right. You know, but in New York City, never. Right. Um, so you know, my feeling is, I had this conversation with Nugent. It's we, there's plenty of room for honest disagreement over who we're going to let in and how many. But who's here now and what they're doing, I don't think there's any question about that. The restaurant business in America cannot survive. The backbone, the, 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 the real workers, the people who are there year after year who are training, you know, overeducated white boys like me who rolled out of the Culinary Institute. When I arrive in a kitchen in New York, the guy who's taking me under his wing and showing me my job is a Mexican guy who worked his way up from dishwasher and, and has been there steady doing it year after year. Um, that's just the way it is, and it's something of an issue with me as far as, you know, let's at least recognize and cut a break for, you know, at very least for the people who've been doing it all these years. How's your spite factor? I mean, I mean, now that you're, you're comfortable and you seem to have found a way for yourself, I mean, like I know, you know, as a comic, and, and I feel like we're kindred spirits in some ways, that, you know, I, I was driven by a certain sense of entitlement in that, you know, in that I, you know, I felt like certain people didn't deserve the recognition that they have. And I, I have to assume that, because do you feel like you're still an outsider, you know, in the world of chefs? No, uh, honestly, when Kitchen Confidential hit um, and it was an overnight success, all the all the chefs, it was nothing but like love and free food from that point on. And all the chefs I've spoken to were like, well, you know, it's nice to see one of us kind of make it out telling the truth um and it was you know it, it helped that you know the book was funny and yeah i hope it was you know true a lot of chefs who had very little in common with my particularly undistinguished career at least had worked at some you know they they knew that life you know yeah. even the old guard french guys were really really good to me so i didn't get any of that i got no spite out of out of, out of chefs um and and i because success came so late to me 
I I was not sort of spoiling. I, I didn't feel that way. I mean, I I I was shocked to still be alive and and gainfully employed in a restaurant at forty four. I I felt like I was on my second life. So to suddenly get a third one, especially a third one this good, I feel pretty damn good about that. You know, I'm not, do you, uh, but like along with politics, do you? I mean, do you ever watch the Food Network and go, "Fucking come on"? Well, yeah, I still I look <laughs> at that. I mean, I like food. Yeah, and I respect food, and I respect people who make food well, um, and I even respect people who make food do the best they can to make it badly. But to deliberately make bad food, to make it your shtick, to just you know sort of wallow in 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 you know really horrendous food uh, and portray it as a as a as a I just yeah, it makes me angry. It, I I do I do yell at my TV a lot. It's like oh my god, don't I can't believe you're doing that. You know that is a lie. You know you do not have to buy a pre-chopped onion. It, it takes a t- another second and a half. You know, you know don't tell me that that is down home cooking. Yeah, you know putting a fucking double cheeseburger, bacon, two eggs beneath you know beneath a, but you know but but you know between two Krispy Kreme donuts. That is just no kind of Southern cook. And then that's no kind of responsible. That's just bad. You know, it's going to get you a lot of attention, but it's morally indefensible. I mean, I'm a guy who likes butter. <laughs> Feel free to kill yourself with food. I'm hardly a role model for healthy eating or yeah. even an advocate for one. Yeah. But, you know, if, if you give me half, you know, if you offered me $100,000 to be a spokesman for, uh, you know, Cargill or Smithfield, um, or told me that I could make a lot more money if I encouraged people to eat, you know, a cheeseburger between Krispy Kreme donuts. I wouldn't. Maybe I don't know whether it's integrity that keeps me from doing that or just vanity. You know, I would feel bad about myself if I did that. Well, you know, what's interesting is that that we don't get good food a lot of times, and it's sort of like I I went to, I was in Denver. I'm not a big pizza guy. You know, I, I eat kind of the same thing all the time, but I like good food, but there's so little of it that I come in contact. That's why when I tweeted you about Cleveland and you sent me over to uh, to uh, Simon's restaurant Simon's and his, yeah. his old sous chef, Jonathan, mm-hmm. who runs that Greenhouse Tavern, they're like right there. Yep. And they're the only vital, yeah, I mean, they, I went to both of them yep. and the food was fucking mind-blowing. There's a lot of good food in, in Cleveland, actually. Yeah. I, and you know, even, just, it's sort of the point. This, this notion that you got to be wealthy or live in a major city to eat well, it's nonsense. It is, it, completely. See, so where I get angry is that, you know, if... If, if people are working just as hard or even harder to make bad food, yeah. when it's easier and often cheaper to make something decent, then, yeah, I get cranky about that. It just requires attention and, and a little more thoughtfulness and maybe buying something that's a little better. Right, or just, or, or, or just is that attitude of, you know, I, you know, I know what I know, I don't care. Um, you know, spaghetti in red sauce. It's like 20 minutes, man. You can make it like an Italian so I okay. went. To, oh, I go to this place in Denver. It's called the. I think it's called Asteria Marco or something. And apparently, I didn't know this going in, but I, yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge burrata guy, mm-hmm. you know. But oh, I, yeah, I like that. Yeah, right. But I got it, and it was like my. It, it like when I put it in my mouth, like I felt like a rush. I'm like, what is how? What's the magic in this? Yeah. And apparently this guy had gotten into a little trouble. I don't know if he's still doing it from, from buying unpasteurized milk from nice. farmers. So that was the first time as an American I'd ever experienced the way it's supposed to taste. Right. Because of regulations. Oh, when you, if you're lucky enough to get like 
farm fresh eggs when you yeah. never had one. It's, you know, all, it's like you know, this is something poor people all over the South have been having, you know, for years. They know. We don't know. You know, in the city, we, we you know, it was, wow, this is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, you know, it's easy for me. I, I instinctively, when I see something like a chicken Caesar, you know, I get cranky or like a pasta, like Olive Garden, you know, it's like, you know, I am a snob. Sure. You know, a, a, about some things. Why some would people things settle like, for that? Well, a lot yeah. of times they don't have access to other things, but you might as well cook at home. Right. But the only reason people don't cook at home is they don't want to do fucking dishes. Yeah. I try I try not to be a snob. It's something I'm at war with with myself. I I, I try not to, but there are some things I see that just make me really, really, really cry. It's, it's easy for me to be condescending. No, but condescending corporate food is not snobbery. Yeah, but, you know, if I go to a restaurant and they're, like, making, uh, you know, like I'm a sushi purist. You know, if you're putting, you know, barbecue pork inside a nori roll, I, I you know. It's, it's snobby of me, but I get I get cranky, and I probably will make a, a rude remark. <laughs> you know, it's a it's an ugly side of me, but there it is. <laughs> and, and the foundation of that is 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 what I've, I just I've had good sushi, and it's a simple three you know three or four. So don't clutter thing. it. It's like it's like when you've had a, a properly cooked spaghetti and fresh tomato sauce. It doesn't even have to be fresh tomatoes. Just you know, canned plum tomatoes, yeah. a sliver of garlic, a leaf of basil, properly yeah. cooked pasta. Twenty minutes. Thank yeah. you very much. And then you go to some place where you know it took them forty-five minutes and twelve ingredients to completely fuck up a bowl of pasta. Yeah, I get really cranky. But about you know it. exactly how that happens, you right? Know? Or yeah, and or, or or when I'm, you know you've had them when you've been lucky enough to have somebody's Mexican mom make you a a, a, a taco, and then you you eat one of these you know cheese whiz varieties. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I feel angry for all humanity. So what do you think is, what is that missing piece? If these people know the basic idea of what good food is and there's so much bad food out there, is it just that it, it becomes heartless? Well, there's a heartless cynical thing. It's like, this has worked for us so far. Or, or just uh, so that, let's like, just reproduce. Right. That. I mean, it's the same with television or, right. or, or the record business. Um, it's something I fight, a, fight about or, or think about a lot on my show. It's, if we, if I just did a show last week that's you know sort of a heartwarming family show as as happens, uh, and it's a huge rating success and critically everybody loves it, I'm going to make damn sure not to do that again this week. I'm going to do everything I can to subvert that. Uh, I just to try it. Well, gee, clearly they like this. Let's reproduce that again and again and again. I'm just not wired to be able to do that. But um, you have done it. I'm not wired to be. Uh, no, I will not. I, I, no, but like when you're working in a kitchen, you got to do 300 brunches. Oh, well, that's your – yeah, absolutely. And listen, <laughs> I mean a lot of people don't have the have the luxury of doing what they want. No, right. But I said I'm instinctively against – you know, if you're doing something cynically, meaning I know this is crap, but people – I know right. it's crap, right. but people like it. I mean I've worked in it. restaurants for most – much of my career where I was cooking – Food I didn't like for for people I didn't care about for bosses I hated I was as big a whore as a person could be. Um, maybe that's why I I I look at you know when I look at a, a, an outfit that could do better but chooses not to. Yeah, I'm maybe it's a professional in me, maybe it's the snob in me, maybe it's a bit of both. But yeah, I'm just saying I'm I'm, I'm cranky. I, I I'm evangelical about it. I wish I could grab everybody the ear and say, listen, this is how easy it is to to. To, to do this dish. It's not as hard as they'd have you believe. They're not doing you any favor giving right. you this. Right. You know? Right. Um, so what is... Uh, in, in, anybody's mom 50 years ago could do better than this. Right. And how how is the... How has the industry changed for the better? For I mean, like, are you, are you nostalgic 
for for the camaraderie of all the insanity that you went through? I miss being able to scratch your balls in a kitchen. You know, yeah. back in the day, you know, they didn't have open kitchens because nobody gave a shit what went on in there. The last person they wanted to see or hear from was the yeah. chef. Right. Um, sure, I miss the hijinks. You know, now a lot of that activity, but but the fact is. You know, I had my time. I had my twenty-eight years. You know, I don't. I don't miss you know snorting coke through penne because you know I'm, I don't miss snorting coke. Yeah. Um, I miss the you know like anything. You look back on your younger, stupider years, and I miss that. But I'm happy for the industry, and I'm happy for the people working in it because now people care about what the chef thinks. You know, um, there are real chances, real opportunities for a limited number of people to actually make some kind of a success, and maybe even have a life someday. You know, outside of the restaurant business, uh, you know, uh, chefs have power. You know, in the old days, no one. You know, you go in, you tell the chef what what you want. You know, I'd like this, and I'd like it this way, my good man. And stop to it, uh, they're chef Boyardee. Yeah. Uh, now people are more likely than ever to go in and say, "What does the chef think is good?" Really, I haven't had that before. I'll I'll try that. So you see people like Mario Batali, who create their own markets and create an appetite for dishes that no one. Everyone had forgotten how to eat. You know, no one had, you know, all those oily little fishes and bone marrow and like lard snouts and cheeks and you know that's the people like me, most chefs they know that to be the good stuff. Yeah. So when you get somebody like Mario who uses their new power and celebrity to coerce and and, and seduce people into eating these things or showing interest in them, that's surely good for the world. I'll eat just about anything. I'll try just about anything. But in, in terms of like everywhere you've traveled. What is the one stream like? If have you've eaten shit that you probably didn't like, yeah, and but it's made properly. Well, I've eaten a lot of I've eaten a lot of bad food that's cooked badly too. But but I've eaten a lot of poor people food that's using basically hooves and snouts and scraps. Uh, that their food traditions that grew up around poverty, deprivation, interrupted supply trains, tough seasons, you know, military situations. And a lot of people in this world, all of the great cooking cultures, developed the great cuisines and the enduring dishes because they had to, you know. And and I think this is something that kind of gets lost. It's just, we, We're at this weird point now because chefs are more empowered. Yeah. They're convincing their public to eat all of these peasant dishes that they love. So the, 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 the working poor are, are, you know, saving up to eat at Red Lobster, you know, or, or to get a you know, a, a, a steak. Um, whereas in the fine dining restaurants, people are paying top dollar for stuff that the poor used to have to eat. Um, you know, what are the hot menu items now? You know, pork belly, cheeks, you know, organ meat, you know, a pig head. You know, you see that everywhere now in one form or another. This is all the stuff of the of, of dirt poor. Like the French would look down on it. Uh no, that was, that's that's the heart and soul of French cooking, or of, and, and of Italian cooking, and of Chinese cooking, and Brazilian and Spanish. And, it's the heart and soul of it. Absolutely, you know, you go to those countries, you talk to any of the chefs. That's the stuff that they grew up eating more often than not, and the stuff they're eating more more than ever now. The difference is now they're putting it on their menus. Now, in terms of, because I have a like, I, I spent a little time in China. Uh, you know, I, I I have I've been to Australia. I haven't been to a lot of the Asian countries, but. Like the one thing that fascinates me about watching cooking is, is that there's there's a, a philosophy behind it and a logic behind all these different cuisines. Mm-hmm. Can you can you explain how Chinese food works to me? 
Well, I mean, it depends. You, Can they you're be using, anything? Well, they had an imp- Remember, they had, like the French in some respects, uh, they had the food of the poor, meaning whatever we had, you know, we better find out how to, it may not be so good now, but we're going to figure right. out a way to cook it to right. make it good because we don't have the, 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 the luxury. So you had hunger as a driving engine for that cuisine. And you also had this huge imperial centralized aristocracy where a lot of people were working 24-7 trying to figure out new ways to impress and delight and amuse the, the, the super rich. So there are two engines at work. One, it's, okay, this, this chicken leg, uh, it, it sucks. I've got to figure out how to make it good. Uh, the other one would be this chicken leg. I have to figure out. Maybe there's something really great in there that I I just haven't figured it out yet. Give me a couple hundred years and I will figure it out. <laughs> um, so th- th- those are two really principal engines of gastronomy. And you know the the old joke that the Chinese will eat anything is kind of true, but that's why they're also you know that is the mother cuisine of of the world and probably the greatest and most diverse and and, and amazing. And and the French sort of define modern cooking. Well, certainly they ran with they took they took a lot of traditions from from all over Europe and and you know they developed a lot of dishes like farm people do or did all over Europe and they refined it and uh, again for a, for an aristocracy they had a they had a working class cuisine that was pretty cool and they developed it and refined it for you know their cruel overlords right and what was your problem with uh, Italian cuisine. I love Italian cuisine. I'm was there married a to an Italian. I'm I'm really big into, you know. I'm happiest eating a bowl of yeah. uh, a bowl of some you know tripes or, or. But early on, you had a problem with it because no. I, in the book, I, I I thought that you sort of were like you know I couldn't cook it, I wasn't going to do it, and that you went through a transition. Well, my you know my dad was French, uh, and like that real was French? what I knew. Like, yeah, uh, well, born there, yeah, was, he, um, but, but an American guy, yeah. Um, I mean, that's, you know, I came up in a French system. And, right. and, and when you went to culinary school back in the day, I mean, that was the, that was the system. You learn French first. So, I, I mean, I'm just a product of that. Um, but these days I'm happiest eating basically cheap Italian wine and a, and a sloppy bowl of pasta just about anywhere in Italy. Yeah, that's, that, is that your favorite uh, cuisine? I don't know whether it's my favorite cuisine, but I mean, I'm just generally happiest, you know, with a big crust yeah. of bread, a bowl of pasta, you know, or some 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 sausage, and drinking some rough local wine. You know, one of these one of these places where, you know, you're at, you ask the, the owner, you know, gee, this this wine is good. You know, who made this wine? And he points at some old guy at the bar and says he made it. You know, so yeah, I like that. How about Eastern European food? You know, communism not good for food, man. The, the Soviets really just. If they didn't kill the chefs, they just they had a very they saw uh, enjoying yourself at the table as bourgeois and possibly treacherous, you know, just bad for the revolution. Yeah, and yeah, they managed yeah. to suffocate it. So a lot of Eastern Europe, uh, they they really obliterated what 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 cuisine was there. And um, place there are a lot of places where it really hasn't come back. It's it's tough. Now, in in terms of your your past and 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 how you you live now, like you you still yeah. You know, well, you're not smoking now. But you, you did for a long time. Yeah, thirty eight years. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm taking these nicotine lozenges. Well, I, I was uh, Chantix. You know, I was taking the, the you know that makes some people that's like right, yeah, 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 and or or, or suicidal. Uh, you know, works for me. If I start cheating, I, I go you know go back on. Yeah, I haven't smoked in like ten years. But how do you reconcile? You're able to uh, to manage, you know, booze and you know mild shit. I mean, obviously, when you come through coke and dope, 
I mean, I'm a freak in that regard. Um, I I never stopped drinking. Um, I was a guy like uh, you know, and I I drink a lot on the show. Um, if I go out to a restaurant, I I drink. Uh, but I've just I've never had liquor at home, or I've never I never you know I've never sat it's in front not of the TV yeah. with a beer. It's not the thing that's going to kill you. It was just not. A, yeah. um, it was never my thing. I, right. I like it. It's part of my life. But yeah. for whatever reason, I. I, I've had a, I've drank too much in my life. I mean, when he, if I was in a work situation, you know, I'd come home drunk every night. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But once I'm out of the work situation, I'm left to my own devices. I'm not going to be, uh, not going to have a problem right. with alcohol. I, I'm, I don't know what to say about that because generally, you know, if you've had a problem with cocaine and heroin, as I did, uh, they tell you, you know, that's it for you, pal. No, you know, you're, you're. No, I know. Yeah, I know how to do it. Take the pledge, uh, and that's that's the only way that. Yeah, I basically I don't know anyone else like me. I know so I know a lot of I, uh, ex, every, ex dopers that 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 do yeah. alcohol. I know a lot of them. Everybody I know who's who's in a coke and heroin, they don't drink at all now. You know, they had it completely stop. Um, but you got you. I was a pothead for my whole life, but you know, I'm a dad now. You know, I kind of need. The way I see it, I kind of I might need my brain at any moment, you know. Like you know, my daughter skins her knee or splits her lip. It's uh-huh. like well, I'm not going to be like, oh, d- oh, d- oh, wow, what am I going to do? I, yeah, I really yeah, yeah. I can't handle this, man. Yeah, you, know? yeah. you, know? you got to show up. Yeah. You got to. I got to show up. So, uh, you know, maybe if I'm on the road, if I'm in the you know the empty quarter of the desert someplace with my crew and we finish shooting. Uh, uh, I'll climb up on a dune and uh, and you know smoke the sure. local. But you know, again, we just we just shot in Amsterdam, and you know, of course, we go to the coffee houses. We're shooting a dope scene, and you know, they're bringing out all these brands, and I'm not allowed to smoke on. Ca- you can't see me take a huff on yeah. camera, but you can certainly see me talk about it. You can see the smoke coming. It's clear what I'm doing. Yeah, but of course, I'm getting high, and you know how you know when you, when you. Smoking weed, suddenly you start feeling like, wow, I'm like everyone's looking at me. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, everyone was. You know, there's like I'm, I look up, I'm like, I'm, wow, I'm having a hard time handling this. Uh, it's like everyone's looking at me, and, and there's people, three cameras looking at me, waiting for me to say something, and I'm just kind of crawling inside myself. I just want to slither away. Not, not comfortable. That's a good episode to look forward to. What's the most layered, you know, cuisine that you've come in contact with? Where the history, like, you know, deep, yeah. Wow, I don't know. I mean, Brazil's pretty interesting uh, because you've got the African, uh, the indigenous, the Portuguese, you know, all of these influences. Yeah. Um, uh, like Singapore, Malaysia, China, Straits, you, really interesting area because you've got Indian, uh, Malay, and ver- uh, many different types of Chinese and Western, all who've been, they've been living in, together and intermarrying and cooking together for, for you know, Centuries. See, that's so the fascinating. Really, really layered and deep, and 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 uh, people grow up cooking all three of those cuisines in those areas. And if you know about cooking, which you do, and 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 if you like, some people are freaks for food history and and for you know where things are sourced from. That you can really appreciate that the depth of a, of a single dish of mm-hmm. food can you know run centuries and multicultures. Well, look at all these dishes like. Uh, you know, coco vin or, um, you know, a lot of these dishes that you look at, like slow-cooked dishes. Yeah. Man, I, I, I taste those and I look at those and I think about, man, it took a lot of time for them to figure out how to make this good. Um, a lot of people suffered to get to this point. You know, a lot of these dishes were created by working people, farmers mostly, who really, they didn't have time to cook. 
and they didn't they, they maybe they'd have a tough rooster and that was about it yeah. um, if they had a chicken they'd sell the chicken they, yeah. all they had was a tough rooster so the, a, cock, a dish like cock oven it sounds fancy but really it's it was a means to throw a pot on the leftovers of the coals you know throw a tough bird in there with some cheap wine or some water some onions and some starch from the yeah. farm they'd go out work the fields all day and you come back and you got something that hopefully is delicious um, it's about as simple <laughs> as it gets, and it's answering some really tough problems. So a lot of times when I'm eating things that brought up, they could, what were the problems that they solved with this dish? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, huh? So yeah, so Coco Van's one thing, but I mean, it, you, you must be able to experience that in any culture. Well, Escargot, another one. I mean, yeah. you really think it was a gourmet who invented, you know, the first guy to eat a snail? Desperation. What a hungry motherfucker, right? <laughs> yeah. it, you know, problem, all I've got is snails. Solution, maybe if I put enough garlic butter on that thing, you know, I can eat it. <laughs> what other places haven't you gone? Um, haven't been to Israel yet. Want to go? Um uh, Myanmar, Burma, but uh, we're kind of waiting for the government to change there. Iran, again, I'd like the government situation to change a little before I go there. You don't want to be uh, doing your show as a hostage? I don't want to give money to people who are, you know, possibly, you know, building IEDs. Uh, you know, I feel, you know, there's an arbitrary. I go to a lot of countries where they do bad things, uh, arguably, but uh, you, you got to draw a line somewhere. Um, and and that's uh, for me... Um, I've heard nothing but wonderful things about if you go to Iran, apparently the people are great. Um, the food is supposed to be spectacular. It's an amazing history, beautiful country, but it's uh, not an attractive government. Yeah. And uh, so you've gone to most of the Asian countries. Um, yeah. I haven't been to, haven't been to Burma, uh, Myanmar. Um, and I mean, you know, China's big. I could make TV in China for the rest of my life and still die pig ignorant. You know, I'd know, I'd, I would know nothing. I that's was, I that's part of the fun, actually, is, you know, you, you, you know how when you, when you go someplace, you go, holy shit, you know, I will never, I will never know anything about this country. I mean, so even just when you teach yourself to order breakfast alone in a, in a new country, it's deeply satisfying. Uh, but the sense that I will die ignorant, uh, never really fully understanding China or Chinese cuisine or even one province of China, that's both discouraging and thrilling. Yeah. I, I get, I, well, that's, I think that's what life is, huh? <laughs> I like being wrong about stuff. Too. I like being surprised. I, I don't mind looking. I really don't mind you know, lo looking like an idiot on my, on my show or, or just being, you know, going in thinking something's really going to suck and then having it, uh, you know turn out the other way well, i think that vulnerability that takes some uh you know that's uh, that's some serious maturity to be well, you know to make i wouldn't sound. go that far no, i'm just but I to be lucky. open to it I, I mean i'm not a humble guy but uh i've gotten used to because i'm lucky enough to travel and go to all these places uh, i'm used to being humbled well it was great talking to you man thank and uh have uh, safe travels thank you Okay, that's it. That's our show. That was my conversation with Anthony Bourdain that took place in a relatively very uncomfortable uh, Brooklyn hotel in the middle of the Hasidic area. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I, as always, I appreciate you listening to WTF. And hold on a minute, just for, for you know, for the thing. Pow! Wow, I think I just shit my pants. JustCoffee.coop, available at WTFPod.com along with a shitload of new merchandise for Christmas. And also, those posters, those coupe posters from the Seattle show, the signed uh, coupe posters are available 
in the merch area at WTFPod.com. We've got some new swag bags. We've got all kinds of stuff. We we do things over there. Things are happening at WTFPod.com. Is that it? Am I forgetting something? Am I going to be somewhere? What's happening? What is happening? <coughs> oh.